0: four of the series Here Comes the Bride. We're studying the Song of Solomon, just a little eight-chapter book in your Bible, and uh, just at the beginning to get everybody on the same page, historically, uh, the Jews understood Song of Solomon to be an allegory of the love between Jehovah and Israel, and of course, in the New Testament, we understand it on an even deeper level. It's an allegory of the love between Jesus Christ and his church, I said this last week, and I want to repeat just this segment one time, um, one more time. In recent years, the study of allegory and typology and the symbolism of Scripture, it has come under fire. It has been frowned upon by many liberal scholars even those that teach at seminaries and whatever. And in effect, what they say to us today, and I I see this as I study in preparation for these lessons in commentary after commentary, they say that we should just treat this portion of the Bible like we would treat any other historical religious book. And something rises up in me when I read those words from a purported Christian. and, And I just have to say in response to all of that, That these are my thoughts on the Song of Solomon. This isn't original with me, but I totally agree. Number one, Song of Solomon is a song. This is one unified poem. It is not just some random collection of ancient poetry. It's a song, the Song of Solomon. Secondly, it is in the Bible, and so if it's in the Bible, it is authoritative, it is anointed, it is powerful, and it is relevant for every one of us who name the name of Jesus. Thirdly, it is about love, and it celebrates human marriage as a divine portrait of this relationship between God and us. And that's not strange to us. Paul wrote about our marriages being a type of the the relationship between Christ and his church. It's the same here in an Old Testament sense. Fourthly, this book is about wisdom. It's in the wisdom literature of the Bible. It is written to instruct us and also to inspire us spiritually. Uh, I I study a lot, Uh, that's part of my uh, responsibility, and I enjoy studying, Uh, they say much study is a weariness of the flesh, and it is, Uh, you you get tired after a while, and you just kind of need to disconnect, but I will tell you that seldom have I enjoyed studying anything, any more than this little book, it inspires me, and it instructs me, and finally, This book is about the son of David. Obviously, it's the song of Solomon. He's the son of David. He sits on the throne after his father David. But there's another son of David in the scripture, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So it just stands to reason that this book about the literal son of David is a picture of Jesus, the the messianic son of David. Now, this book is Eastern poetry and it's ancient, so it's written different than a a line-by-line linear story uh, that we would read today. It flows back and forth, various characters, various scenes, even various time periods. It'll jump ahead and it'll jump backward. There's not so much of a definite storyline, but despite that loose structure, um, the majority of Bible scholars have come to this agreement on the outline of the book, And I think this is important for you to realize if you set out to read it so you can make some sense of it. First of all, the three sections of the book describe the bridegroom in their engagement, then in their wedding, and finally in their marriage. And those sections are separated by two haunting dreams. We talked about that last week. The bride is afraid that her beloved has left her. She has one uh, just before they get married and one kind of somewhere early in their marriage. And uh, then, then finally, uh, I, I've said this each week and I think it's important. This is a beautiful portrait of marriage and it's a beautiful portrait of our relationship with Jesus. In marriage, scripture tells us that we leave our family of origin, we cleave to our spouse And then we weave a life together. It's the very same thing in your relationship with God. You leave the things of the world. You cleave to the Lord Jesus. And then he begins to weave your mistakes into miracles. And he begins to to weave all of your past into your future. It's awesome. It's a perfect picture. Now tonight, last week, we looked at this little book, Through the Eyes of the Bride. Tonight, we're going to look at it through the eyes of the bridegroom. His name, of course, is Solomon. He is the son of King David and Bathsheba. He's the third king of the nation of Israel, and he is the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. He presided over the golden age of Israel when the entire nation, the Bible says, lived in peace and prosperity. During his tenure, the beautiful, glorious temple was built the royal palace was constructed. And when people from distant nations, uh, they heard about Solomon, they started one after another after another making this long journey to the little nation of Israel just to hear Solomon's wisdom and to see his wealth for themselves. And Solomon even wrote three books that are in your Bible. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and this book that is called the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. His father David gave him the name Shalomo, which is in Hebrew, Solomon in English, Shalomo. That is a derivative of the Hebrew word Shalom, which means Peace That was part of Solomon's name and and David gave him that name probably hoping that Solomon's reign would be a reign of peace because David's had been a reign of one war after the other and sure enough Solomon's name was fulfilled. He had a peaceful reign for 40 years. But Solomon was also given a second name, not by his father, David, but by God himself, who sent the prophet Nathan right after Solomon's birth. He was still an infant and and God himself gave Solomon a second name, Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord or friend of God. This guy had it made. He is the wealthiest man who ever lived. He's the smartest guy who ever lived and he's a friend of God. He's got it made in the shade. And the Bible says that God gave him that name, Jedediah. It was sent through the prophet Nathan, but it was given because of the Lord, because of God's love for Solomon. Now, everybody knows who reads the Bible at all. You know about Solomon's failures later on in his life. You know that he married many pagan wives. He was trying to establish political, peaceful relationships with their countries. But when he started marrying those wives and they started bringing their gods into Israel and then Solomon tried to pacify and please them by building uh, little altars for them, it it ends up being that all the little hillsides of Israel are dotted by all these pagan shrines and altars. And when Solomon did that, he, he got entangled with the gods of these pagan women. And he violated the law of the Lord and he turned his heart away from God. It's a very sad story when you look at the end of Solomon's life. And that is why the book of Ecclesiastes is so very depressing. Uh, Don't read it when you're down. Please don't do that because we'll have extra counseling that week. Just read something else. Read the Psalms. Read Joy Unspeakable and Full of Glory or read something else. Don't read Ecclesiastes if you're down. But I have good news for you. Song of Solomon is years earlier. It predates all of that backsliding. It predates all of his later failures. Song of Solomon was written in his younger years, and it tells the story of Solomon's first true love. Now, the language of true love is unique among human beings. If you've ever had teenagers in your home who were in love with somebody else who could not be reached immediately and had to be reached by telephone, you know that this is true. The language of true love doesn't make a lot of sense. It's punctuated by long pauses where I guess they listen to each other breathe uh, back and forth across the phone lines. That's apparently very romantic. Um, Not in COVID, but before that it was. The language of true love is unashamedly intimate. The language of true love is uncompromisingly exclusive. Nobody else is allowed to mess with this relationship. It's the two of them. And sometimes the language of true love is unapologetically obvious. It's just plain obvious to everybody else. And that's certainly the case with this little book. Um, While they certainly have many private moments, you will notice as you read through this book that Solomon and the Shulamite girl, who's his first true love, they seem quite unconcerned that others, like the daughters of Jerusalem, might overhear them. Uh, The daughters of Jerusalem are always lurking around the corner, looking for news, listening for gossip, and, and, and they're unconcerned. They don't care that they might overhear their sentimental conversations or their sugary compliments. They don't care. They are totally unbothered by what anyone might think or what anyone else might say about this passionate relationship that is becoming public. To which I would say, in a like manner, it is impossible to hide a real relationship with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. If you really love him, somebody's gonna know about it. If you really love him, somebody's gonna detect that. If you really love him, somebody is gonna think you have lost your ever-loving mind because you're so in love with the king. That's what happened to the Shulamite, and that's what happens to the saint. In the first chapter, we first read his pet name for her. For about three milliseconds, I entertained the notion of asking you all to shout out your pet name for your, uh, but I quickly dismissed that. I don't want to know too much information. But in the first chapter of this book, we, we read his pet name for her. His pet name is My Love. That is pretty basic. He, he says that nine times uh, through eight chapters, My Love. And he doesn't even do much of the talking. She does most of it. But my love, that's his pet name for her. Now, we understand that. But when he first says it, the compliment that follows it is a little strange to us. It's in the very first chapter in verse uh, 9. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Now, that's just weird to us. But see, we've forgotten because we're city dwellers. We've forgotten just how beautiful and graceful horses can be when compared to many of the other animals in God's kingdom. We're also unaware of just how valuable horses were in the ancient world. And in the case of horses pulling royal chariots, not only would they be a valuable animal, but they would be elegantly and expensively adorned. In fact, he goes on to say that. Furthermore, the Hebrew term for horses here is feminine. This is a mare, a female horse, harnessed among stallions, which I've got to say would be quite the ultimate distraction for all the stallions So what Solomon actually did was he paid her a high compliment. He said, you are so beautiful, I can't keep my eyes off you. You're like a mare among all the stallions and I'm gonna beat all those other guys away from you because you're so beautiful. So this is actually very high praise, but our modern Western minds, we just don't comprehend or understand the imagery. But that's pretty mild compared to some of the other imagery in this book. Because throughout this poem, he will say to her, uh, he will say, my love. And then he will say beautiful things to her like, you have dove's eyes. That's not too bad. Your hair is like a flock of goats. (laughs) I'm going to guess that compliment was given in the morning. And this next one too, your teeth are like a flock of sheep. Now this would not be a compliment today. It was then your navel is like a round goblet. Apparently she ate well. Because the next compliment is your belly is like a heap of wheat. See, you don't get it. You're Western. You're modern. You think this is a joke, but he meant it so serious. He was in love, even when he said, and your nose is like a tower. (laughs) So he's really madly in love, and you're laughing at the poor guy. That's just not good. Chapter 1 also gives us her pet name for him, my beloved. And she says that 24 times in eight chapters. Over and over, back and forth, they address each other. My love, my beloved, my love, my beloved. There is nobody else in this relationship as far as these young lovers are concerned. But as we discussed last week, this young bride has a serious inferiority complex. And it troubles her deeply and greatly from time to time. And here's why. She can't comprehend how a king could ever love her. She's a humble peasant girl. She works in a vineyard. She can't comprehend how a king, the king of the whole country, could ever love her. And we talked about this last week. It's obvious to any reader of this little book that these issues aren't coming from Solomon. They're coming from her past, and they're coming from her perception of herself. She hasn't yet figured it out that the wisdom and the wealth and the authority and the security of a king, a mighty king, can easily overcome any or all of those obstacles. You see, she hasn't yet learned it. Maybe you haven't yet learned it. That when you're in a relationship with the king, your history doesn't define your destiny. And your failure doesn't set up your future. It's totally different. All the rules change when you get in a relationship with the king because the love of a king is a powerful thing. And I don't care if you're smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament and Song of Solomon or if you're in Bible study tonight. The love of a king is a powerful thing. And he can take all of your mess and all of your failures and turn it around. But she really has this inferiority thing uh, pretty deeply, and it troubles her uh, regularly. There's a little conversation right at the beginning of chapter two between the the two of them. And uh, we can now today, uh, they didn't do this with the King James translation 410 years ago, but many of the modern translations have done this. And, And some places there's still questions, but here, basically everybody's agreed on who's talking and when they're talking. And when we look at the Hebrew pronouns, either it's a masculine, which means he's talking, or it's a feminine, she's talking, it's plural or singular, it's her or it's all of the daughters of Jerusalem, that would be a plural female. And so we can look at this and we can tell who's talking. And scholars agree that despite what one of our favored old gospel songs says, In this passage, it is the bride who compares herself to a rose of Sharon and a lily of the valley, not the bridegroom. It's the bride who says, I am a rose of Sharon. I'm the lily of the valley. She speaks in verse 1. He replies in verse 2. She speaks again in verse 3. So let's look at it that way. She says to him, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. That is not ego talking, that is inferiority speaking. She's putting herself down because the rose of Sharon was a common wildflower that grew everywhere in the fields. And an ordinary lily, that's what she's saying, I'm just ordinary, there's nothing, you can pick a rose in Sharon anytime, in any hill, in any valley, and I'm like just the common lily, the crocus that grows in the valley And and, and so that's her attitude about herself. I'm nothing special. I don't deserve a relationship with a king. I'm just like a weed that grows in, in the field. She's putting herself down. And Solomon will have none of that because that is not the way he looks at her. So he gently corrects her perception. And here's what he says in verse two. As the lily among thorns so is my love among the daughters. He says, no, no, you're not just like any old lily or any old rose that grows on the hillsides with thousands of others. No, when I look at you, I see a pure white lily standing strong, standing pure among a bunch of thorns. To which I just want to say, I hope you can comprehend it, that the king of kings doesn't see you the way you see yourself. You look in the mirror and you see failure. He looks at you and he sees a child of heaven. You look in the mirror and you see every little uh, issue from your past. He looks at you and he sees someone not only with a future here on earth, but an eternity in heaven. He doesn't see you the way you see yourself. If I could give everybody in this room and everybody watching online a gift tonight, I would give you the gift of being able to see yourself like Jesus sees you because he sees you as his beloved bride. He sees you as part of his body. He sees you as part of the church of the firstborn. He's invested in you. He gave his life for you. He shed his blood for you. Heaven is behind you. The angels are in favor of you and the name of the Lord is a strong tower and you can run right into it and be safe. He doesn't see you the way people talk about you. He doesn't see you the way you see yourself. Now (laughs) that he said that, now she's ready to talk. She looks back at him and now she gives him a compliment in verse three. As the apple tree... Among the trees of the wood, so was my beloved among the sons, I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She now compares Solomon to a strong and beautiful apple tree in the middle of a forest. He's so strong that she can sit down, find shade, protection from the sun. She can find food to eat. Now, in Israel, it would be highly unusual to find an apple tree in a common forest. So she's actually saying, you are one in a million, Solomon. There's nobody else around that's like you. And her compliments might seem a little bit over the top to other people, but she doesn't care. They accurately express her heart to him. Listen, she doesn't care what it sounds like. She doesn't care if you think it's sappy, syrupy, sugary, and sentimental. She could care less. This is how her heart feels about her beloved. And it is exactly like your worship appears to God. He loves it when you pour out your heart to him. He is not analyzing your word to see if you got a bunch of these and thous strung properly together with the right syntax and verb tenses. He could care less when you just say, I love you, Jesus, his heart beats. When you just say, I worship you, Jesus, he's there. And and it doesn't make a lot of sense, these romantic relationships whether they're between your teenager and somebody else's teenager, whether it's between, let's not forget we were all there one time, or whether it's between the king of kings and his beloved bride. It may not make sense to a lot of other people. I love Pentecostal worship. I found something online. I am getting old. I found this collection today of all these old songs. Many of them were recorded before I was born. And I got listening to them. And you know what I liked? It was a bunch of old Pentecostal songs. You know what I liked? A bunch of people talking in tongues and you could hear them shouting and probably shaking bobby pins out of their hair in the background. And I just thought that was amazing. I listened to it all day while I studied. I just thought it was amazing. Do you know to the world, that looks like we are absolutely nuts. But can I tell you, I'm a little tired of COVID restrictions. I just hate that. So we're gonna keep rules, but my goodness, let's not let restrictions in the physical shut us down in the spiritual. You have a right and a privilege to worship God and to give him your praise. And he's right right on the edge of his seat when you start worshiping him because he knows that you love him. And so there are many ways to praise your beloved in this beautiful little book. She says in chapter two and and verse four, he brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me was love. And then she gets challenged by the daughters of Jerusalem, which are a rough equivalent of the women in the foyer at church. She is challenged by the daughters of Jerusalem. And, and they get pushing on her. They think she's acting a little ridiculous. And, and, and you know, they, they don't think all of this romance and all this sentimental talk and all this uh, public display of affection, they don't think that's necessary. And, and when she's challenged, she responds. And let me say, this is where that old familiar gospel song got it exactly right. No mistake here. The daughters of Jerusalem say to her, what is thy beloved more than anybody else's beloved? O oh, thou fairest among women. What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? You are going around acting like you're crazy. You are saying all this flowery stuff about him. What's your beloved more than anybody else's beloved? And we'll talk about it next week why they don't recognize yet that it's King Solomon. We'll talk about that next week. I can hardly wait. I'm vibrating with excitement over teaching next week. But this is where that old gospel song got it right. She looks back at them after they have just dissed her beloved and she says, my beloved is white and ruddy. He is the chiefest among 10,000. That's where that old song got it exactly right. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. And when the world looks at us, they think we are crazy for devoting so much of our time, so much of our schedule, our energy, our finance, our family, our energy, our future to the church, to the Lord Jesus, to Christianity, to the word of God. They think we're nuts. And they would say, what's Jesus any more than any other religious figure? What's the Bible any more than any other religious book? What is Christianity any more than any other religion? And our answer is, you don't get it. My beloved, he is the fairest among 10,000. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's the God above all gods. You don't get it. It's not me that's wrong. It's not me that's out of whack. It's you. You just don't understand. This is love. And it just goes all through the book. It's, it's amazing. Of course, it's a, it's a love poem. She says, his mouth is most sweet. Now, for any of you that have a pacemaker in, you might need to turn it down. I don't know if you can even do that. <laughs> I don't have one, so. <laughs> His mouth is most sweet. I- I'm not gonna explain. Uh, I'll let your spiritual gift figure out what she's talking about there. If you have the spiritual gift of kissing, you will know exactly what she's referred to. <laughs> His mouth is most sweet. Yay. He is altogether lovely. You don't really call a man lovely. She doesn't care. That's what she feels right now. And you know what? I don't care what the world thinks of how we worship or how we praise or how we sing. I don't care because it's not for them. It's not even for us. It's about him. He is altogether lovely. She says, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O oh daughters of Jerusalem. Go back to the foyer and gossip about somebody else. Chapter six, verse three, she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. She says in chapter seven, verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. It's not just me that desires him. It's not just me expressing love to him. I'm amazed that his desire is toward me and he expresses love toward me. And I know all of you that were here last week or all of you that watched last week, you will remember this statement. She says, I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and I would not let him go. <sighs> Uh, that one still gets me. I found the one that my soul loves. There are lots of things that I love down here on earth. There are people that I love. There are things that I love. There are activities that I love. There there are wonderful uh, pleasures in this life that we get to enjoy, and I love them all. I love my sweet wife and my precious family. I love my friends. I love this church. But let me tell you, when I compare all of them and all of that to Jesus, I have to say, I have found him whom my soul loveth. It's a different kind of love. It's a deeper love. And and I say with her, I held him and I would not let him go. And then there's this beautiful, powerful verse right at the beginning of the book. It's only three verses in. She says, because of the savor of thy good ointment, she says, Solomon, beloved, your name is like ointment poured forth. That's why all the young maidens in Israel love you. That's why you have a big fan club, because just to say your name is like pouring forth fragrant ointment. Everybody loves you, Solomon, You've got a fan club, Solomon. But she says, but I love you the most. Your name is like ointment poured forth. Jesus, your name is like anointing oil poured forth. You ever been in one of those services and some pastor or worship leader says, let's all say the name of Jesus. And and to your brain, it feels like, well, that's just kind of a, a little cheerleading section. No, it's not. Because his name is like oil poured forth. You can speak the name of Jesus and demons crumple and crumble and flee. You can speak the name of Jesus and sickness shrivels up and goes back to wherever it came from. You can speak the name of jesus and he can make a way where there seems to be no way he can open up a river in the middle of a desert he can knock down a mountain and make straight paths for your feet all just when you speak the name of jesus the song says he's as close as the mention of his name his name is like oil poured forth I know it's Bible study, but I wish you'd get your hands in the air and your voice in the atmosphere and just say, Jesus, I worship you. Because when you say that name, there's an anointing oil that gets poured out. When you say it again, there's more anointing that gets poured out. God, your name is like oil that is poured forth. It's poured out. It's the anointing that touches your church. (laughs) Oh my, 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 Mm. I wish you'd lift up that voice one more time and use that precious gift that the Lord invested in you and just worship him in that spirit language. I wish you'd just worship him in that baptism language that he poured into your soul when he filled you with the Holy Ghost. He's worthy of it. When you speak his name, it's like oil poured forth. Anything can happen when the anointing oil is poured forth. Ho 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 ho. Yes, yes. Thank you Jesus. His presence is rich. His presence is like incense. His name is like oil poured forth. Ha! <laughs> 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 wow. <laughs> A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to be a big shot in the tents of wickedness. I love his presence. I love his church. I love his word. And I love that name. It's like oil that is poured forth. It's like the anointing that just begins to flow. It's the name of Jesus uh, wow! Yes, 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 yes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, my. Oh, take a moment. I promise you I'm not in a rush. This is what I came for. I didn't come to give you a dead little lecture and let you listen real attentively. I came to be in the presence of the one that my soul adores. He is the chiefest among 10,000 ha. I love you, Jesus! I love you, God! I love you, God! Oh, I love you, Jesus! I love you, Jesus! I worship you, God! Can you imagine that the King of the whole nation? found this little obscure peasant girl and fell in love with her. Can you imagine that the king of all kings found you, a sinner, and fell in love with you? It boggles the imagination if you think about it for a million years. It still defies description. The Bible says about Solomon that King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and wisdom. And all the earth, this is amazing, sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. So truly there was never a wiser or wealthier or greater king than Solomon. The splendor of his kingdom, the supremacy of his reign, They were without equal anywhere in the pages of the Old Testament. Nobody came close. And that's why rulers from distant lands, they regularly would make the long, difficult journey to Israel, this little tiny kingdom, just to catch a glimpse of all that Solomon had and all that he knew. And the most famous one to make such a pilgrimage was the queen of Sheba. She traveled by caravan one way, 1,500 miles. That journey with a caravan like that would have taken 75 days. To get there and back, she would have spent almost a half a year crossing a barren, burning desert with few comforts. But every danger and every peril of the road and every difficulty and discomfort she encountered when she got there, it was worth it. 2 Chronicles chapter 9 records the audience that she had. And when the queen of Sheba had seen The wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and their apparel and the ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. It took her breath away. She was overwhelmed. She had sensory overload, just seeing the blessings of God on the kingdom of Solomon. And she said to Solomon, she said to the king, she said, it was a true report, which I heard in my own land of your acts and of your wisdom. But I didn't believe the words of everybody that came back or came by and said how great you were. I didn't believe their words until I came. And my own eyes had seen it. And behold, let me tell you, Solomon, the one half of the greatness of thy wisdom was not told to me. The half was not even told to me because you exceed all the fame that I had even heard about. And then she ends by saying this. She looks around at his servants that wait on him his every need. And she says, happy are thy men and happy are these thy servants because they get to stand continually before thee and they get to hear your wisdom day after day. They are so lucky, Solomon. They are so fortunate. They are so blessed. I'm the queen of a country, but I'm jealous of your servants that get to stand before you every day. I don't know about you. I hope that's how you feel. When you think about Jesus and his church, I get to look around and I see lives that he's changed, and I see families that he's put back together, and I see sickness that he's healed, and I see testimony after testimony, and I just feel like the Queen of Sheba. Happy are these your servants. They get to be in your presence continually. We get to hear from your wisdom continually. Oh God, we're blessed. The half wasn't told us of how. How good it would be in your kingdom. Almost a thousand years later, a different kind of king appears on the scene. And the religious leaders, they didn't like his kind of kingdom at all. On one particularly difficult day, when his enemies are fiercely criticizing him, they're accusing him of being in league with the devil, They're trying to trap him in his words. They're plotting to destroy him. And they're challenging him and and badgering him. Show us a miracle. Show us a sign. Finally, King Jesus had enough. And this is what he said to them. The queen of the south, she's going to rise up in the judgment with this generation and she will condemn it. Because she came, she traveled for half a year across a barren burning desert to get to Solomon. She came from the uttermost parts of the earth just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And then he looked at them and he said, and behold... A greater than Solomon is here. I know he was the wealthiest king who ever lived, but a greater than Solomon is here. I know he was the smartest guy who ever resided on planet Earth, but a greater than Solomon is here. And that statement must have stunned the Pharisees. How in the world could Jesus be greater than Solomon, who in their books was the greatest ruler of all time Solomon was the son of a sovereign all they knew was that Jesus was an illegitimate son of a carpenter Solomon was born in a palace. Jesus was born in a stable. Solomon's birthplace was the royal city of Jerusalem. Jesus' birthplace was the obscure, tiny little village of Bethlehem. Solomon had hundreds of servants to wait on his every need, hand and foot, every hour of every day. Jesus only had a ragtag band of 12 disciples and they often quarreled among themselves. Solomon wore kingly royal robes. Jesus wore a peasant's garment. Solomon drank from golden goblets. Jesus had to ask a woman of ill repute at a well for a drink of water. Solomon had thousands of horses and hundreds of chariots Jesus had to walk wherever he went. Solomon commanded great armies who in a heartbeat, they would die for him. Jesus' own followers ran away the night he was arrested. Solomon was rich beyond compare. Jesus was a poor pauper. Solomon lived in a palace. Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. How in the world could Jesus be greater than Solomon? Well, let me tell you. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. But the Bible tells me that Jesus is the power and the wisdom of God. Solomon studied and investigated the world all around him and wrote about it. But Jesus created everything that Solomon ever knew or ever studied about. Solomon, the Bible says he planted trees and vineyards all around Israel. But Jesus had the power to look at a fig tree one day and say, you're dead, and it withered away. Solomon, he spoke at length about animals and fish, but Jesus, he had the power to cause enough fish to jump into two nets that the catch almost sank two boats. Solomon knew everything there was to know about the cycle of the weather and the cycle of the winds. But Jesus stood in the bow of a boat and looked at a raging wind and said, peace be still. And in an instant, the storm stopped. Solomon sent out ships to navigate the waters of the earth and bring back riches. But Jesus could walk on the waves of the sea. He could go. He was God stepping on those waves. Solomon, yeah, he drank from vessels of gold with all of his guests. But Jesus could turn water into wine for an entire wedding feast. Solomon invited his guests and his subjects to great feasts and great parties. But Jesus, he could one-up Solomon any day of the week. He could take five loaves and two fish and he could feed 5,000 people. People just by praying a prayer over it. Yes, Solomon had tons of gold and ivory and spices pour into his coffers every year. But Jesus, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all the hills that those cows are standing on. Yes, Solomon was arrayed in beautiful royal robes, but Jesus created the lilies of the field and the Bible says that the lilies of the field, even Solomon in all of his grandeur and glory, he can't compare to the way God dresses up the flowers of the field. Solomon sat on a glorious throne, but when it comes to Jesus, the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. Yes, Solomon wrote three books of the Bible, pretty impressive. He collected 3,000 proverbs and he wrote a hundred, a thousand, and five songs, but Jesus is the subject of every song that Solomon ever wrote. And he is the word of God manifested in flesh. Solomon took 13 years to build a majestic palace for himself. It was amazing. It was an architectural and engineering marvel. But Jesus, he's been preparing mansions for us For 2,000 years, your little mansion is going to dwarf whatever Solomon could ever have dreamed of building. Solomon took seven years to build a magnificent temple. But Jesus said, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. Solomon, of course, like every other great king in history, he died And he was buried, and his kingdom was divided after he died. But Jesus, he rose from the dead. And the Bible tells me, and his kingdom shall never end. And newsflash, we are in his kingdom. We're part of the kingdom that never ends. Solomon's servants, you read it with me. They were happy to stand before him. And here is wisdom. it, It impressed the daylights out of the queen of Sheba. She couldn't believe it. Happy are these thy men that stand in your presence and hear your wisdom. I got one better than that. Jesus gives me joy unspeakable and full of glory. And like the queen of Sheba, the half has never yet been told. The queen of Sheba, she said that line. The half wasn't told me. But even the world itself, John wrote at the very last end of his gospel. In the final verse, you check it out of the gospel of John. He said, if we tried to write down everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did and every miracle Jesus ever performed, the world itself could not contain enough books to describe what God did when he lived on earth in a body of flesh last scripture, Acts chapter seven. This is Stephen preaching. He made them so angry that they martyred him. He was preaching along and he was recounting the history of Israel and how Israel had failed so often and they backslidden so regularly. And they let him preach for a while. It's a lengthy sermon, it's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, what young Stephen preaches. In Acts chapter 7. But when he starts edging toward this, they start getting mad. He said, but Solomon built God a house. Instantly, they're all over that. This is Solomon, King Solomon, mighty Solomon. The one who presided over the greatest period of peace and prosperity that Israel had ever known. This is their Solomon, This is the wisest and wealthiest ruler that human history would ever see. They're proud of Solomon. And then they're especially proud of the glorious temple that Solomon built for the Lord. It was a heartbreaking day in Israel when Solomon's temple was destroyed and they were carted off into captivity because the Jews have a saying. I've heard it in Israel. They say it to this day. Here's their saying. He, that he who never saw the temple of Solomon has never seen a beautiful building. They still say it today. If you didn't see the temple of Solomon, you can brag about whatever building you want. You never saw a beautiful building unless you saw the temple of Solomon. But Stephen, he carries on just a sentence too far. He said, Solomon built God a house, how be it? The most high, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he dwelleth not in temples made with hands. That's what our prophets said to them. That was an offense to say that God doesn't dwell in the beautiful temple that King Solomon built the wisest and wealthiest man in all the earth who do you think you are Stephen to say that God doesn't dwell in temples made of hands but see Stephen wasn't an Old Testament saint he was a New Testament saint that young guy was filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost and had been baptized in Jesus name like every other Christian on every page of your New Testament and so Stephen knew it for a fact that God isn't concerned about what building you can build, what achievement you can muster, what credentials you may have, he's not concerned about what location you might be in, he doesn't dwell In temples made with hands He dwells In the temples that he made You are the temple Of the Holy Ghost Paul would write And and, and if God Designed that temple Don't cover it with graffiti Don't fill it up with garbage You're a holy temple Unto the Lord The Queen of Sheba Was in awe Of Solomon And the question at the end of this lesson tonight is this. I've considered it often today. When is the last time that you, not us, you, that you had an awe-inspiring experience in the presence of your King? When is the last time... (laughs) That the tears sprang to your eyes unbidden. When is the last time? This is what I loved about our elders. And we've lost so many elders over the last decade. This is what I loved about our elders. They were unashamed to worship God. And they didn't care how it sounded or looked like or if somebody thought them weird. Brother Noel Phillips, don't you ever stop responding to the Holy Ghost the way you do. I'm so thankful for that. And you know what? And you feel it when it happens. When's the last time you, not us, we can do this together pretty good. We've always got somebody carrying the dead weight. We've always got a great worship team or a pastor's preaching a sermon or somebody's pushing us to respond. I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about you. In your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, when's the last time you felt like the queen of Sheba? I'm in awe, Jesus. I look around at what you've done. I look around at what you've given me. I look around at your blessings and I'm breathless. I'm awestruck. The half wasn't told me of how good this would be. If the Queen of Sheba could travel 1,500 miles round trip across that desert and she could go through all the the discomfort and the perils of a barren, burning desert to get to an earthly king and then think it was worth the trip. Can I just tell you, anything you've ever given up, anything you've ever done, anything you've ever sacrificed for Jesus, it's well worth the trip. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. Solomon did build a glorious temple. But you're not just his bride; you're his temple. He doesn't just call you on the phone; he lives in you. He's waiting for you. He's longing for you. When's the last time you had one of those awe-struck moments in the presence of Jesus, all by your little old self, like a lovesick teenager? I hope it hasn't been very long because here's what I know about Jesus. He's longing for that moment. He's waiting for that moment. He's hoping for that moment. I love what we do when we get together. We're not going to stop. I love our worship. I love our singing. I love how you precious people respond to the word of God and the presence of God. (laughs) We don't have enough hours in this building to cover you. And we couldn't we'd all have to move in here it would have to be a much bigger building you have a life all by yourself to live with your beloved my beloved is the chiefest among ten thousand I found the one that my soul loveth I held him and I would not let him go would you lift up your hands? Would you lift up your praise? Would you lift up your love toward the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords? So <laughs> ba it's time, CCC. It's time, everybody watching home. Let out your praise. Don't care what it sounds like. This is love. Let out your praise. Don't care what it looks like. This is romance. It's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and He loves you. He loves you. Ah, uh, my, 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 my. Thank you, Jesus. You're my beloved. Oh, let the worship flow like a river. Just just let it move and carry us along for a moment. We have time for this. This is why we came tonight. Name Jesus is like oil poured forth today He's as close as the mention of his name